are listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 45, Seasonal Affective Disorder. So a bit back, the clocks got turned back and we got an extra hour of sleep. Hooray! But with the clock going back, this also means our days are shorter. Boo! Many of us find our moods change with the shorter days. So today on Minding the Brain, we're going to talk about seasonal affective disorder. Kim, what is seasonal affective disorder? Well, seasonal affective disorder, or SAD, which is the uh, acronym. It's like the most perfect acronym in science, isn't it? (laughs) Right. Uh, So it is a type of depression that's brought on by the shorter days of fall and winter. And we know that it is specific to this the seasons because you folks that have this experience spontaneous remission in the spring or the summer. And uh, what's interesting is uh, I don't know if you've ever used Google Trends. I've never used it, but I read a lot. I read a lot about people using them. Yeah, well, it's an, it's an interesting tool. And so if you if you search for on Google Trends uh, for depression, what you can see is it it'll give you like if you look for a specific time frame, you'll see that the searches for depression peak in November and February and are lowest in July. And you know we we obviously can't make too much out of this, but it suggests that um, individuals might be experiencing these symptoms more in those months and are possibly looking up you know how do I how do I get help you know so so is it the case that all humans feel sadder in the winter or when there are shorter days. How common is uh, seasonal affective disorder? Well, yeah, n- not really. Um, you know, if you talk to adults, most might experience similar but milder kind of what, what are called vegetative symptoms, right? Vegetative, you kind of want to curl up in a ball and under a blanket and watch Netflix and eat potato chips. But, um, you know, and it does suggest that this seasonality is a dimensional process uh, rather than a discrete on-off symptom. Symptom or syndrome, um, but they, you know there are folks that experience it to such a great extent that they actually need to seek treatment, right? So in terms of incidence or the epidemiology of it, the first studies uh, that were done on the screen populations in the United States, uh, and they did so with what are called retrospective questionnaires. So you know, if I ask you, have you ever experienced more sadness or mood changes in the fall and the winter, for example? And these studies tend to find uh, a fairly high prevalence of seasonal affective disorder generally in the range of about four to nine percent. So what that means is, you know, take a population of 100 people, um, probably four to nine of them would have seasonal affective disorder. Yeah, that is a lot. Uh, So what are the symptoms uh, that people have with this? Is it the same as depression, but like only part of the year? Yeah, sort of. So patients will they'll experience the usual symptoms of depression, such as low mood, loss of interest in pleasurable activities, difficulty concentrating, loss of energy, and fatigue. Um, but what's interesting is that seasonal affective disorder patients will have what are called the atypical vegetative symptoms. So classical vegetative symptoms of depression are loss of appetite, weight loss, and they have trouble sleeping, and they sleep they're kind of have insomnia, but uh, a, a client with seasonal affective disorder, a patient will experience increased sleep, increased appetite, and increased weight gain. That's interesting. I mean, I know that people even who are not suffering sleep more in the winter, and that has something to do with, I mean, we have a lot of artificial light, so they did studies of the Amish and found that they that people sleep, the Amish sleep about an hour more in the winter. So if you find yourself sleeping more in the winter, doesn't doesn't mean you got sad. <laughs> right, right. It's true. Like, yeah. Because like, people it, do sleep more in the winter for whatever reason. Okay. 
And they eat a lot too. Do they have specific food cravings or do they just like get, you know, gorge on celery? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately not. Um, Yeah. So patients will often crave carbohydrate rich foods, right? So sweets in particular. And uh, interestingly, they've done studies and they find that um, folks who do have seasonal affective disorder with these kinds of cravings, they'll primarily eat these during the afternoon or the evening. Uh, And they'll often also feel super sleepy during the day in spite of sleeping a lot more uh, in the evenings, and that and that uh, that finding is is consistent with the idea that as it gets darker, they're going to you know their symptoms increase and they want to eat, right? That's right. Eat and go to bed. Yeah. Okay. All right. So how do you diagnose? How do you diagnose this? So according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, that I we've talked a lot uh, about not minding the brain, uh, the criteria includes the following. So you have it's 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 classified as uh, one of the uh, depressive or affective disorders. So you have the major depressive disorder with a seasonal pattern, and so uh, you would have to show that there's been a regular temporal relationship between the onset of the major depressive episode and the time of year, for example, fall mm-hmm. or winter. Although I just I want to add that there are some curious folks who experience the opposite pattern and they get seasonal affective disorder in the spring or summer, which is curious, but very, very unusual. Anyway, so uh, back to our typical seasonal affective disorder um, patient. Then they would experience a full remission or change from depression uh, to mania or hypomania. And that occurs at a characteristic time of year, for example, the spring. Uh, and then you'd also have to uh, have this be observed over the last two years. Um, so you're showing some consistency with the pattern. This is not a one-off. And you're not also experiencing non-seasonal depressive episodes because if that was the case, you'd be more likely to have a diagnosis of major depressive um, disorder. And then, yeah, so the seasonal episodes should be occurring more often than the non-seasonal episodes, which may have occurred at some point in the person's lifespan. But, you know, as with a lot of you know medical science, uh, psychiatric science isn't perfect, right? So it's it you know it's it's never the case that somebody has like a set of, of symptoms. It's like oh that's you, right? So that's why it takes a lot of you know retrospective querying of a patient's history and then also tracking a, a patient through time to see what would be the better uh, treatment option for an individual. Right. So that's the dry DSM criteria. But to make it personal, we've got someone who's uh, happy to talk about their experience with seasonal affective disorder. Right, Kim? That's right. So uh, here in the studio today, uh, in the virtual studio, we have uh, Ryan Forsyth. So I'd like to introduce to you Minding the Brain, Ryan. So uh, I've gotten to know Ryan a little bit on the Twitter sphere because he is a, a very vocal advocate around mental health. He does a lot of work around mental health awareness and in particular around men's mental health. And I just want to shout out that November is Men's Mental Health Month. That's right. That is correct. Yep. The mustache is going, you know, we're... The mustache is a growing, <laughs> although it's just kind of connecting with the beard. Yeah, I'm cheating. I'm cheating for the first little bit, and then we'll we'll do the mustache. It's a lot to commit to. <laughs> um, well, I, we're really glad that you've uh, joined us here today in the studio, the virtual Minding the Brain studio. You know, the, the whole reason this interview came about was because um, I, I caught one of your tweets that said something about, you know, the shorter days of winter are coming. I can feel my mood uh, being impacted 
impacted. And uh, I figured I'd reach out and see if you were willing to talk about your own journey with seasonal affective disorder. So my first question to you is, when did you know that you had seasonal affective disorder? What, you know, talk to Mm. us a little bit about that journey of kind of realizing that, uh, you know, the depression may have been linked to the fall and the winter months. That's That's a good question, because I don't know if I have a concrete light bulb moment for that. But I think as I became more involved with the mental health community and, and, you know, talking to scientists like yourself and just learning more about it, I started to connect the dots. And I think it was always there. I look back to when I was a teenager, there was, there was definitely symptoms. Um, but like when you're a teenager, especially, you know, I was playing competitive hockey, I was going to school, I had a job, you're just so busy and, and, you know, hormones, all that stuff, you don't really notice it. And then as I moved into my twenties, uh, early 20s, still didn't really notice it. But I think it was probably within the last, I would say three or four years where I really started, like those dots really started to connect. Um, Just every time, especially the fall, like the fall change, uh, as opposed to the spring change, it's just, it is an ongoing struggle of just lethargy, uh, exhaustion for no reason. I'm sleeping like 12 hours. Um, And then you definitely notice, uh, especially once we get into like January, February, the depression really, really starts to take hold. So I would say it's a little more recent where I was more cognizant of the fact that it was happening, um, but it's probably affected me most of you know my teenage and adult life. You mentioned about three, four years ago, you really started to notice that um, the mood was tanking in, in, those, in the fall and winter. Did you seek out support? Did you go to your physician, a home doctor? Well, just given who I am, I'm I've obviously being vocal about my mental health. Um, I'm very honest and open about it. So I've been seeing a therapist for years um, off and on. And I think it's just having those ongoing conversations. And like I kind of mentioned off the top that like listening to people who are experts in the field and when they're talking about this openly, how does it come back to my life? Um, Am I recognizing those things uh, that people are saying, especially when it's surrounding a a topic like this and given that it's very timely right now. So when I see people, other people talking about it, I'm like, oh, okay. Like I'm I'm feeling that too. I'm feeling tired right now. And then you, you start to you know reflect uh, on on what you're feeling so I did I did go see the my therapist and we, we talked about it and talked about ways we could try to keep myself I guess I moving keeping myself motivated thank you for joining us Ryan now interestingly depression seems to have a gender bias uh, more people who identify as female tend to be depressed is that the same with seasonal affective disorder It is. So most studies find that uh, SAD is more common among women and the reported sex ratio varies, but average across studies is about 1 to 8, uh, 1.8. So for every, um, you know, it sounds a bit strange, but for every male that's diagnosed, 1.8 females are diagnosed, if that makes sense. So it's a little less uh, than major depressive disorder. That's about 1 to 2. The typical patient is a premenopausal female who experiences carbohydrate cravings, hypersomnia, which is lots of sleep and prominent fatigue during uh, the winter months. Now, it would make sense that people who live in parts of the world that get very little daylight, um, you know, northern countries like Norway, Greenland, have higher rates of seasonal affective disorder. I mean, more specifically, these places get enormous amounts of sunlight, daylight in, in some in some parts of the year. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. uh, the opposite. Is, is, uh, you'd, you'd expect the differences then to, of, of mood to be higher in those countries. Is that true? Yeah, right. And this is actually draw, it's driving one of the major hypotheses of seasonal affective disorder. And it's known as the latitude or or 
photoperiodic hypothesis. And since lack of light in winter is thought to be the cause of winter depression, you kind of expect to be more prevalent at higher northern latitudes where they're getting very, very short days. Uh, and it's also based on the marked similarity between the core symptoms of seasonal affective disorder and the energy conserving strategies that are implemented by a variety of species at northern latitudes. Now think about a bear, right? So what do bears do in winter? Hibernate. They hibernate, right? They And right before they hibernate, they pack on a lot of pounds, right? They eat and eat, they eat, uh, so that they can put a lot of uh, energy into their fat stores. And they go uh, in a cave for a number of months and emerge in the spring rather lean, but having slept off um, most of the, of the winter. And, you know, there's kind of a similarity there with folks that have seasonal affective disorder. Except unlike, unlike bears, they're craving potato chips instead of salmon. <laughs> <laughs> Salmon flavored chips. <laughs> raw, raw salmon sashimi mm, is not a symptom oh, of sad. Yeah. <laughs> Bears love it. <laughs> I, I gotta admit, I love sashimi. But anyway, so all that is to say, the hypothesis suggests this clear association between the prevalence of seasonal affective disorder right. and increasing latitude. But when you look at the actual evidence for this, so um, epidemiological studies, it's rather mixed. So mm. some studies support the hypothesis. Other studies have found no correlation with latitude. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at this across the US and Europe, and when you analyze the studies um, separately, you can look at like latitude gradients. And you can see that there are, are some effects, but they're rather weak. Um, and it could be that some individuals are genetically protected from seasonal affective disorder. You meaning like if they if their ancestors were from a place with high variance in the length of the days that they would have adapted to it? Is that what you mean? Yeah, kind of. Exactly. So, you know, um, first of all, we do see that family and twin studies and molecular genetic studies reveal that some genes may influence the tendency to experience seasonal affective disorder. Um, but uh, certain ethnic groups who've been living in high northern latitudes for several generations may have adapted to that winter, right? And, and several studies have indeed examined indigenous peoples of Norway, Finland, Siberia, and Alaska and show, uh, so these studies and, and other ethnic groups find that the propensity to experience winter depression does slightly differ between uh, ethnic groups. Um, but as an example, Iceland, right, which is this mm -hmm. kind of frosty island where the population has lived in these high northern latitudes in pretty much virtual isolation for the past 1,000 years, um, the prevalence of seasonal affective disorder is rather low uh, in Iceland. So it may this may experience some of these inconsistencies, right? So we may see populations that have adapted to it uh, and other populations uh, less so. That's interesting. And we might predict that somebody from the equator would have a greater propensity for seasonal affective disorder if they were to move to a northern climate, for example. You know, right, that would be interesting. right. And I, I think about that often with our students, Jim, that, that move, uh, you know, we have several students that uh, come from a variety of, of countries in Africa or even India, uh, and they come to Canada, and I, I can't imagine like the cold as it is is a is a shock. But to experience these very short days, uh, you know, and, and I think the our shortest days, you can the sun starting to set around four thirty in the evening here, uh, that could be you know can have an impact on their biology. Right, right, and, and I, I wonder too. Like uh, Vancouver is very cloudy, even mm. you know, and and mm -hmm. it, like here in Ottawa in the winter, it's cold, but it's often very bright. I'm just wondering. Yeah, wondering if if uh, it's if if it's a certain quality of light 
you know, that does it or something? Mm. Well, interestingly, one of my colleagues, Paul Villeneuve, just published a meta-analysis on the link between meteorological um, variability and suicide risk. Yeah, so there, there's definitely some things with weather, right? And even I notice, like on a sunny day, my mood kind of brightens, like regardless of whether it's the summer or not. There's something about that sunshine that is impacting our mood, and it's probably hitting our eyeballs, which okay. where do our eyeballs go into, Jim? Or I, well, I, part of the eyeballs are the brain, I read. Your mm, retina is actually right. a part of the brain, if you can correct me mm. if I'm wrong. But let's mm. get into Kim's favorite part, uh, the biological underpinnings of seasonal affective disorder. Kim, are there good neuroscience theories that explain seasonal affective disorder? You bet there are. That's why you're <laughs> That's here. <it. laughs> Wee. Uh, that said, it, it, it you know I want to put the caveat that it is a fairly complex disorder, like most psychiatric conditions, that result from the interaction of probably several vulnerability factors that act at several different levels, and there are also various genetic mechanisms that underlie them. So if you can imagine, um, you know, seasonal affective disorder involves you know changes in biological rhythms. You're changes in mood, changes in eating, changes in sleeping, light sensitivity, and all of those factors are regulated by different genes. So it's probably some combination of those genes um, that is impacting um, the incidence of the disease. That's why you call it a syndrome, right? A syndrome means it's it's kind of a cluster of many different things that could be um, independently high or low. Is that right? Yep. You bet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about mechanism. Let's talk brain. Right. So, um, um, the research on seasonal affective disorder seems to be rather focused on melatonin. That's skin, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> is it mel- is Mel- melatonin the stuff you take when you sleep? Oh, no, I'm thinking yes. of melanin. <laughs> you, you were thinking of melanin. They're related, no, though, right? No. Yes. Yeah. N- not. No. If, yes. But funny. That extra. There's an extra syllable in there. Melanin is something that's made by melanocytes in your skin. But yeah, that's what changes our skin that color and freckles. Yeah, that's all good. Okay, <laughs> so, so melatonin. T- melatonin is yes. something you t- people take it to help them get to sleep, right? Correct. And so uh, you can get over-the-counter uh, melatonin, uh, which is a synthetic version of the hormone that we produce. And uh, what's interesting is in the brain, melatonin is synthesized from the amino a- acid tryptophan. Uh, and uh, tryptophan is what's called an essential amino acid, which means we must get it from our diet. So when we eat things that are high in tryptophan, uh, it gets into our bloodstream and uh, is converted into various uh, proteins in our body. Isn't uh, and it's a precursor to serotonin? Yes. So melatonin is a precursor to both tryptophan and serotonin. Oh, oh okay. And that's serotonin yeah. is involved with sleep and mood, right? Correct. Yeah. Remember what I said earlier about seasonal affective disorder being marked by carbohydrate cravings? Yes. Well, it could be that somebody, here's a you know one of the hypotheses, is that someone who's susceptible to seasonal affective disorder is trying to sort of, quote unquote, bulk up for the winter, eating lots of carb-rich foods that contain tryptophan. Um, so we know that eating like a very high a diet that's kind of carbohydrate rich, protein poor, so the opposite of um, like a keto diet, uh, tends to increase brain levels of tryptophan and serotonin. So it's possible that they're self-medicating poor mood. Mm. Um, and interestingly, menstruating women will also experience these carb cravings right before they get their period because of this um, the the dip in uh, serotonin levels. No, that, no wonder I feel sleepy after I eat a, a big donut. Mm. Mm, well, yes, let's not tr- trigger carb cravings in our listeners. Uh, they need to be paying attention. 
for the rest of the episode. It's too late. Okay. Um, So, (laughs) sure could use some broccoli right now. All right. um, Yeah. Back to melatonin. (laughs) Yes, back to melatonin. So, circulating tryptophan, right? So, we get it from our, so we get tryptophan from our diet. It gets into the brain. It crosses the the blood-brain barrier and is detected by the pineal gland. Oh, that's where the mind connects to the brain. Wow, we the mind and the brain. <laughs> okay, Descartes. Um, no, that's not where the okay, That's not where the mind and the brain are connected. So, for those of you uh, that don't uh, have any background in philosophy, Descartes uh, was a French philosopher from the 19th century who believed that uh, the mind and the brain were separate. Right. So, um, and he believed that the mind was actually connected to the brain via the pineal gland. Anyway, Which I think but, he no. pi- I think he picked that just because he had no idea what it did probably <laughs> um and yeah it, it does look like this this like dangling snot in the back of your head right so it's this tiny gland located located in the middle of the brain and it's kind of tucked into a groove where the two cerebral hemispheres are connected anyway, so does pineal mean snot groove in latin or something it does well done <laughs> <No>. <laughs> i don't know what it means okay pineal maybe maybe not i don't know uh anyway tryptophan circulates from the bloodstream it cl- crosses uh, that blood-brain barrier and is converted into uh, melatonin and is also uh, converted into serotonin. But here's here's the important thing. High levels of melatonin tend to promote sleep. Okay, so let's bring it back to seasonal affective disorder. Do the levels fl- fluctuate? Yes, they do. So they they are they so levels will fluctuate obviously throughout the day, right? We have a circadian rhythm because um, melatonin levels will increase in response to ambient darkness. So the darker it is, the more melatonin, and therefore um, this kind of promotes sleep. So if you can imagine, as your eyes, right, because light gets into um, it strikes our eyes and uh, uh, light energy is converted into kind of a neural signal. So we have cells that are responsive to the amount of light energy that are also dictating um, uh, the conversion of tryptophan into melatonin. So as more the light levels are declining, more melatonin is being converted, and this means that you're kind of it's it's getting you ready for for sleep uh, in the evening, right? So. Uh, that said, the duration of melatonin secretion does reflect the length of the night. And so we have um, longer nights in winter and therefore more melatonin and shorter nights in summer or less melatonin. And so how this relates to seasonal affective disorder is that scientists believe that individuals who have seasonal affective disorder may have some kind of increased response to the darkness or the shorter days, and it results in exaggerated melatonin levels. And what's um, also relevant to how this changes your symptoms is because uh, another uh, part of the endocrine system or hormone system, the thyroid gland, responds to melatonin levels, and higher uh, melatonin levels results in the production, uh, synthesis, and release of lower thyroid hormones, and this translates to decreased energy and metabolism. So again, think about that kind of the, the bear, right? Getting ready for winter, you're, you're, you're boosting melatonin levels. And we see this in other hibernating animals or even small rodents, boosting uh, melatonin, uh, lowering thyroid ho- hormones. So you're kind of, you're slowing your entire system down, right? Decreasing energy and metabolism so that you're not 
um, hungry in, in the middle of the night, right? So you're not waking up at 3 a.m. or the bear's not waking up at, you know, in February going, I'm starving. I want that salmon. So it's all working to conserve energy. And um, this would have been in prehistoric times highly um, efficient, right? It, it would make sense that somebody wants to kind of tuck in during the winter because we didn't have artificial lights, fridges, food available to us 247. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes scientists think that seasonal affective disorders like those individuals are sort of they haven't adapted to modern times right they're almost as if they're living in the paleolithic um and it's the the disorder is a result of sort of inadequate illumination in fall and winter and excessive signaling of melatonin less thyroid hormone more sleepiness and right. you're being, you know, is the mood distortion a result of like you're kind of being forced to to get out of your your warm nest and join, you know, you go to work or go to school or whatever. Who knows, mm-hmm. right? But mood is definitely impacted as well. Right. So, so we've we've uh, I think we've talked before about how if you have trouble sleeping, cutting out the artificial light an hour before bedtime might help you sleep. Mm-hmm. But here, this That's suggests right. the opposite kind of. So, if if darkness induces melatonin, which causes sleepiness and poor mood. Could you use bright light as a treatment to uh, lower your melatonin? You got it. And that's exactly how uh, seasonal affective disorder is treated. Um, have you heard of bright light therapy? Uh, yeah. Isn't that when they have like a full spectrum lamp and you can just sort of buy it on Amazon and you look into it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it, it's pretty cool that seasonal affective disorder can be pretty easily treated at home. Um so there's specific types of lamps that are formulated to kind of pump out light of a specific brightness. Uh, so a recommended dose, for example, is about, you know, you uh, 5,000 lux, which is a unit of brightness, uh, 5,000 lux hours per day. So 10,000 lux every half hour um, in the morning. So that's the important thing. You, you get these lamps and you're not supposed to stare at them. They're kind of meant to sit on the, like the corner of your desk, um, but just to, just to the side. And and it, you have to have it so that it's it is kind of facing um, the the side of your eyeballs, and uh, you know early early in the mornings so around before eight a.m. Sit there for half an hour, maybe as you're reading or doing some emailing, and uh, uh, that's that's enough. And you know your computer also has um, the kind of blue light that triggers that waking. So um, looking mm, at a screen true. in the morning um, contributes a little bit too. A little um, bit, yeah. Yeah, and well, mm-hmm. th- okay. So, does this work? This therapy? Yeah, that's the cool thing is that it, it can it can be pretty powerful. Pharmaceuticals or drug treatment isn't necessarily needed. My caveat here that sometimes not all are treated, right? So, um, there is some evidence to show that if you are somebody who's suffering and you have symptoms that include the carb cravings and hypersomnia, this will predict a fairly robust response to the bright light therapy. Whereas if you're in the more typical depressive symptomatology, which is the insomnia and weight loss, you're more likely to be less responsive. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's encouraging. There's a treatment. Ryan, have, have you tried bright light therapy? Like I have a bright light, like a reading light that's like points directly at my face. I have a ring light that kind of goes right in here and especially yeah. during the winter months. So it was always different working in the office because that's the point where I, I would always be during the winter, right? So you have the industrial lights like beaming on your face that you're practically getting a sunburn. Um, but working from home um, now, that's where I I really started to feel it a little bit more. So not that bright light per se, but I do use light 
to my mm-hmm. advantage um, mm-hmm. to try to, especially in the mornings when you're just like, it just like just wake me up. Like, so. Yeah. Cause as you heard, that's the recommended, right? You have to put it in some, you have to hit it to your eyeballs sometime before 8 a.m. Oh, I'm maybe not even up by 8 a.m. some days. So. <laughs> <laughs> Another perk of working from home. <laughs> oh, good. So I'm going to just end by speaking a little bit more about your mental health journey. And um, if if listeners want to know more, where can they find you, first of all? Uh, I'm all over the internet. Um, you can go to mm-hmm. like, either Life in Red podcast or Big Red Ryan Zero One. Um, I'm on all the platforms. Uh, and lifeinredpodcast.com uh, is probably the easiest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I would highly recommend uh, the Life in Red podcast. There's lots of excellent episodes on there with a variety of folks from uh, Ottawa and beyond uh, that really speak to a lot of different topics related to mental health and wellness. And I really, really appreciate Ryan's work on uh, sort of combating toxic masculinity. Uh, and that's something, a space that I, I'm really, really keen to learn more about because we talk a lot about mental health and we know that uh, individuals who identify female tend to be diagnosed more often than than those that identify male. And yet, I think a lot of that relates to males unwillingness for, uh, or, or um, being conditioned to not seek out support and help if they are struggling, right? So um, I just give me a couple couple minutes of, you know, what's the best thing that you can tell our listeners, if you're a male and you're listening and you're struggling with your mental health, what would you say? It's a good question. I would say, I mean, the easy answer is uh, talk to somebody. But I think as a, a man, and like you were mentioning toxic masculinity and this conditioning to think that when we're feeling sad, low, depressed, that we we don't necessarily recognize it as chronic or that it, it, it might be an ongoing problem. Um, we kind of just tough it out, you know, just that this mentality of keep moving, keep going, uh, it'll get better. Or, you know what, if I do talk, nobody cares. Um, and that is sort of another issue off to the side there. But I would say, um, as we know, mental health and mental illness are different. You don't have to be diagnosed as depressed to experience depression or anxiety. But I think for any man out there, no matter what you're feeling, um, you should be talking to some sort of support, whether it's a partner, whether it's your family, a friend, a professional, um, an anonymous su- support group or a men's support group, peer support, whatever you feel comfortable. I found my just not talking to someone directly at first and just talking to everybody um, because it just it eliminated sort of this personal connection of me being vulnerable um, and that I was just able to as if I, I was talking to everybody but it felt like I was talking to nobody at the same time. Um, but just a- acknowledging what you're feeling um, and then telling somebody about it and you know maybe there isn't subsequent support that you might need. Maybe it's just getting something off your chest and you feel a lot better because you're not carrying away that burden anymore. But the important part is, is no matter what you're feeling, somebody out there probably feels the exact same way or is probably thinking the exact same thing. And we use this cliche a little bit, but you, you are not alone. And if you talk to somebody, just just get it off your chest, um, you can remove that burden of, of what you're carrying around. And then you can identify if you need additional supports. Um, there's lots of different varieties of supports there, but the most important thing is you acknowledge it and you, you speak about it first. Thank you. I, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that. So uh, thank you again, Ryan, for joining us in the studio today. I really enjoyed talking to you and uh, hopefully you'll get through these next few months relatively uh, unscathed and continue your wellness journey and uh, take care of yourself. Well, I, I thank you for having me. 
Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.